It is the thesis of this book that modern man, freed from the bonds of pre-individualistic society, which simultaneously gave him security and limited him, has not gained freedom in the positive sense of the realization of his individual self, that is, the expression of his intellectual, emotional, and sensuous potentialities. Freedom, though it has brought him independence and rationality, has made him isolated and thereby anxious and powerless. Gentlemen, excited to do this episode of Made You Think with both of you today. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. So today we're covering Escape from Freedom, and we have Paul Miller joining us on the podcast. Hey, Paul. Hey, guys. Excited to be here. Uh, Been listening to many episodes over the years and uh, excited to dive in. This book is... uh, Super interesting to me in my own journey and uh, helping me write my own book uh, over the last year as well. Yeah, so tell us a little bit more about that quickly before we dive in, because you, you said something interesting before we started the show that like this book helped you close a loop in your book that you were working on. So and that and then I guess you reached out to Neil when he talked about the podcast coming back, and that was kind of how like this uh, book kind of like popped up and Neil was also reading it at the same time. So yeah, what was that like? Very coincidental. Yeah, it's funny yeah. how these line up sometimes. So what, what was that like loop that it closed for you? Yeah, so uh, stepping back, I, I left my job uh, about five years ago to ostensibly become a freelance consultant. Along the way, I kind of stumbled upon this space in my life in which slowly creative activity kind of injected into that. Got excited about that. Didn't really stumble into any legible like creator economy until even the last couple of years, but had been doing that kind of stuff. Part of my shift over the past five years was having this, like, I want to escape work mindset towards actually what I call it now, like design for liking work. And I think resonates with a lot of what you've written about work too, Nat, um, and we'll dive into. And I I think breaking down the negative freedom and positive freedom was really powerful because his positive freedom is freedom too. And I think a lot of people interpret that or have internalized this idea of freedom as like the freedom to do whatever I want or to be a jerk or just to do whatever. And Frome's sense is much deeper than that. It's kind of a connectedness to the world, connectedness to self and uh, the things that really bring you alive. So I think that kind of put language to what I was both experiencing and trying to understand in my own journey. And a lot of what I uh, wrote about in my book, which was that shift from trying to get what I call shifting from getting ahead to coming alive. And Neil, how did you stumble on it? It's a good question. I'm really bad at finding out where I, where I heard of books because this is now two for two, the last two books. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure. I know it was sitting in my Kindle for a long time, though. So it might have been something that someone recommended to me a while ago. And I just, there was one day in like December where I was just like, I don't know what to read. And I just was looking through the Kindle library and it just looked interesting. So yeah. And I think like the the cool thing was that I think it also tied into some uh, things that I was feeling recently. So I had a a couple of very lean years um, while I was caregiving. So on the, the income front, but last year and then, you know, starting off this year, that's been like, I feel like I've not solved because it's never really solved, but I feel like I'm doing much better on the work side, both like from doing work that I actually enjoy. And then from like a compensation standpoint um, and not doing the parts that I don't like. And as I started reading this book, that w- there were a lot of themes, right. That kind of came in into this. Cause 
we were talking about this before we hit record, but you know, some, in some ways, like we feel like freedom would be, Oh, we can just go sit and read all day and not have to worry about anything. But I feel like the few times in my life that this, that's actually been possible, it gets boring really, really fast. And I'm like, yeah, looking for the next thing. That's kind of like a interesting. We started talking about this question before, like like you were saying before we started recording, and that's kind of my question. Sometimes reading through it too, is he's got this really good notion in here. Let me try to find a good quotation of it because where he he has this concept he talks about a decent amount about how there's a big difference between what we think we want and what like we actually want and how much of what we say we want is actually what you know other people are telling us to want yeah i think that was the illusion of individuality section mm. uh i have a quote if you want me to yeah see. go for it go for it yeah all our energy is spent for the purposes of getting what we want and most people never question the premise of this activity that they know their true wants and <laughs> I, that that was so powerful for me. I think on my own journey, like I went from a very high salary to a low salary. So I started having to make trade-offs and suddenly I had these revealed preferences that were not what I expected. So it makes you realize so many people are just kind of going through with untested um, beliefs in their head of kind of who they are and what they think they want. Yeah, yeah. Paul, I feel like you've talked about this a lot on just even on like your tweets and and blog posts and your newsletter of that journey that you kind of went on. What, if you don't mind me asking, cause I don't think I have, I, I don't know the answer to this. Like what actually motivated you? Like what got you sort of out of that high salary, like rat race type of feeling to actually step back and like, were you just super unhappy? Was there like a catalyst event? Like what actually forced you to do that? Cause I think, I mean, he kind of talks about this in the book too. Like a lot of people, most of us, I would say, actually just go through life like automations in some way or NPCs or, uh, or something NPCs, like that, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and, and this is actually kind of perfect too, because, uh, you know, before you answer that, Paul, like in the last episode, Quest for, is it yeah, the or, uh, Quest? Yeah, The Simple Life. Like one of the main themes there is that a lot of people just like sit around and complain about how much they dislike their current situation but don't actually do anything about it. And it's like, you should, you should basically either just like accept it and stop complaining, or you should go like do it. And yeah, I mean, from, you know, what you've shared so far, it sounds like you were in the camp that actually like did something about it. So yeah, it was like, what, what kind of got you over that hump, would you say? Yeah. So I had been working in strategy consulting for about nine uh, years and the final two years of that, I was in a situation which pushed me beyond like frustration zone. Like I was always really good at consulting, but never really loved the politics and kind of wanting to be a partner or anything like that. And then I just ended up with the wrong um, manager in the wrong group. And I became so frustrated and I, I kind of tortured myself and like blaming myself for this. And I started just doing a lot of reflection. So it was really reflection. Uh, I looked at this letter I wrote in business school and wrote all these principles and I graded myself on them hmm. and I just had to be honest and I had really crappy low scores and I kind of just got fed up with myself and was like you gotta freaking do something and I think two actually is interesting though when I reflect back it's really hearing other stories of people doing this stuff 
people writing about their journey, uh, podcasts started becoming popular in those final two years, 2014, 2015, 2016. And I think the combo of those two kind of told me that like, I don't know what's going to come of this, but I need to go find out. What do you mind sharing any of those principles? And like, just for clarity, you wrote those principles down in business school and then you refound them, or these were things that you wrote down like later when you ended up deciding to quit? I wrote them in business school and I always knew they were there, like in the back of my head. Like I knew I wrote these. I knew they were things that mattered to me. One was like, bring humor to the workplace. Two was like, make sure you're prioritizing, like helping others and mentoring others because that's important to me. Don't take work too seriously. So I assessed myself. I was taking work very seriously. I was caring a ton about the pay and promotion. Mm -hmm. Um, I was not funny (laughs) or humorous at work. I was too serious. I was taking uh, everything. I was not taking anything lightly. It was just like, I I need to escape uh, this situation. So it was really just a desire to escape. I think underneath that, I understand it now, is probably a deeper drive to adventure. And I think you two probably have that same spirit as well. Maybe that's a genetic setting or something. But yeah, I, I had just confused myself for the people I was around. And I think Frome talks about that too, kind of the um, traps of conformity. This is like kind of a silly question, but I'm very curious. Like, where did you, where did you store those principles so that you were able to find them so much later? Because I feel like this is actually a non-trivial problem in like long-term (laughs) self-reflection. And I asked because I had this problem recently where I like reread Awaken the Giant Within by Tony Robbins, which I think like holds up. It's actually quite good. I think it's better than almost everything like derivative that's come after it. And you have to like, you know, you have to get through some of the like cringy, you know, high energy Tony parts, but the underlying exercises are very good. And I know I did them in 2016 and then I couldn't find them anywhere. And I was like really disappointed. So like, how did you ever know? Dude, it's no, not in there. It's which, not there. Like, yeah. I'm just trying to think what tools so that I know sure. you used. I know. I was time. so like, sure. Yeah. It had to have been in Evernote. It wasn't there. I was like, God, like, where could this be? So uh, just personal curiosity. Like, how did you research yeah, it just, that? It was just in my email. I I had my That's actually um, really smart. School email linked to my Gmail. So I, I always knew it was there. I had always kind of gone back to it. I don't know why. And I had been doing some reflection stuff for a few years and it just like, I don't know, I decided to create like this PowerPoint slide of metrics and great grading myself. It's very business school. (laughs) I mean, I did strategy consulting for nine years. But yeah, and it was like the third straight quarter I did it and the graph was just like straight down. I was like falling off a cliff. Yeah, Uh, Interesting. Because I think like the other the other piece of this book and and Nat, I have a question for you for this next section that I was going to talk about is like a lot of us don't we think we want freedom right when we're in we're in like an oppressive type situation like a job that we're not happy with or a, a sometimes you even like create your own oppressive situation like you start a company that becomes a job I've certainly felt that where it's like you start something and you really don't want to be doing it anymore for whatever reason maybe it's not what you expected or maybe you're not building it the right way or whatever. I mean, there's many reasons, but you're just in a situation where you're oppressed in some one way, shape or form. And you're like, I want to be free from this, but then you might get that freedom. And what he talks about a lot in this book is 
we actually don't really want that open-ended freedom. Like that is not yeah. actually a desirable state for most of us or almost any of us really. Um, and so Nat, one question I had for you uh, based on obviously what I know about your story is you sort of had this pretty early on in your career when you were in South America, right? Where you were like able to earn in a fairly passive way enough to live and you didn't really need to work. And so, uh, yeah, I think you've had that a couple of different times, right? In your life. Yeah. I mean, we were, this is kind of what we were talking about before the call. And like, I, I had a tweet about this the other day where it's like, I, the joke is that like, oh, once I just make a little bit more money, then I'll like stop doing these productive things. I just write full time (laughs) because like on the one hand, I feel like the writing is the one thing that I could do forever. Like writing and this, honestly, I feel like we could do made you think for like 60 years and it would be generational. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, we've been bringing it back for five years now. So it's pretty good. Like, we're still uh, not at the hundredth episode yet. We got <laughs> some, some long breaks, but yeah, it's like <laughs> this kind of thing. I think I could do basically forever. The writing obviously could do forever. And so then there's always this question that I have of like, okay, well, why aren't I doing that? And I, yeah, I mean, it's like when I was in Argentina, I mean, I, I wasn't making like a crazy amount. It was like 2,500, three grand a month passively, yeah. but it's like enough to live pretty comfortably exactly. in like Buenos Aires. Yeah. in a lot of countries. And uh, I mean, I was like pretty depressed by like month three. So, uh, and I, I, you know, I don't actually think that was work related. I think that was being somewhere with no community and like having one friend and just like feeling kind of isolated. And then there's there's also this problem of like, I, I think that most people need like a meaningful project to work on, like something that's truly meaningful to them. And certain people will get meaningful work from different activities where like some people can really get it from like taking care of their kids. Some people can really get it from like, you know, charitable work. Some people can really get it from, you know, like writing obviously. And some people, you know, it, it almost, for some people, I think it almost needs a like degree of financial return attached to it to be like fully satisfying. And so I feel like that's the part that I struggle with is like, it's hard for me to be fully satisfied by work if I'm not seeing like some financial like outcome from it. Uh, like a metric of some yeah, sort. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, and, and not even because I like want the money for anything, right? Like it's this, yep. it, it's, it, it's almost like that's just where part of the like satisfaction comes from. And, and then I have this like question of like, okay, well, is that some like, money trauma that I need to like undo so that I can be truly happy. Or like if this isn't causing destructive behavior in my life, like maybe it's not a bad thing and maybe it's okay. Like I don't, I don't know what the answer to that is. All right. So that's where I always kind of like end up swinging back and forth on this is every time I try to go like full-time creator, just write and read all the time, I get like very restless and dissatisfied, but maybe that's also just how I procrastinate, right? Like maybe I'm just the best procrastinator ever. And (laughs) I've procrastinated writing by like starting a marketing agency and learning programming and getting into crypto and like doing all this other shit. So I don't know. Building courses. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I wonder though, is, is it just aligned with what you like getting better at? Like that's kind Maybe, of what I mean, from that's kind of what from talks about, right? You may just also happen to be doing the other things, and it. I, I, yeah, I think like I think to me the you know we were talking about this like adventure drive at the beginning, and I think for me a lot of the motivation is just like curiosity and being interested in stuff, uh, and then also like 
enjoying figuring things out and then helping explain it to other people. So I, I think there's this element too of like good writing is comes from like some amount of lived experience. Oh, definitely. So yeah. it's like, you know, to, to some extent doing all this other stuff is also just like good fodder for like having things to write about. Or talk about it. I feel like on this podcast, yeah, yeah, half the like almost everything we talk about, it's like the stories are partially inspired by the books, but then so much of it is like our own experiences too. Yeah. I mean, if if this was like our full time thing, there, I don't know, we'd probably run out of things to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. I'd probably get kind of boring fast. (laughs) We would like only be able to reference books. Right. Right. There'd be no tangents. There'd be no no (laughs) (laughs) tangents. To be fair, like there's there's a place for that kind of like, heavy academic bookishness. Uh, I'm just not a fan of it. I I think one thing that's interesting, tying it back to the book, uh, is how, like, in his eyes, freedom is this very new thing. Mm. Like, like we we were kind of oppressed in the sense that our uh, station in life was kind of dictated by the class we were born into or the roles we were born into or the um, the feudal state we're born into. And then that kind of shifted with the Reformation. But the religions were kind of this intermediate step that kind of had these other trade-offs of putting all the onus on the individual, but basically just building in anxiety into the relationship with the indiv- individual. And, I mean, you can still see that. And then Frome, I think, in the middle of the 20th century is saying this is even newer. Like we have this capitalism now that's actually freeing people and people have no idea what they're doing. And then he just goes off and is like, well, this is why they're jumping into conformity, consumerism, work. Or, or I wouldn't even use the word work because he, he uses work in a different way, but like corporations or um, following uh, just the, the hurt. Yeah, there's a great line in here somewhere basically about this like dual this dual side of capitalism right because what you were just talking about this like medieval self where it wasn't that you had a job as a blacksmith like you were a blacksmith like that was your identity and that was your like place in life and so the growth of like capitalism and business gave people a lot of freedom here it is uh With the beginning of capitalism, all classes of society started to move. There ceased to be a fixed place in the economic order, which could be considered a natural and unquestionable one. The individual was left alone. Everything depended on his own effort, not on the security of his traditional status. And then a couple pages later, capitalism freed the individual. It freed man from the regimentation of the corporative system. Yeah, corporative system. It allowed him to stand on his own feet and to try his luck. He became the master of his fate. His was the risk, his the gain. So you get this kind of like dual side of it where for people who can like lean into and take advantage of that freedom, it's this like incredible opportunity to like transcend your original status in life that was never available to the vast majority of people. But for also for a lot of people, it creates this kind of just like fear and like aimlessness where when you have this like total like all these options ahead of you it's hard to know like where to go or where to even like place yourself within that which drives us to then find other things to like cling on to for a sense of security and stability yeah and it's it's dizzying like yeah I, i think early on in my journey it it was so overwhelming how 
like insecure I was, but it was only the like deeper belief that uh, there's something to find here or I definitely don't want to go back. That kind of kept me going. But I always tell people, people are like, oh, I kind of want to do what you're doing. And I'm like, you may not. Mm -hmm. And my takeaway is always like, it it may suck, but it may also be worth it. That's kind of the mindset you have to go in into it with. Yeah, you have to be able to like handle that instability, uncertainness, right? Like, I think it gets romanticized a lot, but it's definitely not for everyone. Where was that like insecurity for you since you mentioned that in particular? In a way, it was kind of tied to a loss of identity, a loss of place in the world. Mm. Uh, you go from this person that people see as a successful um, person, uh, somebody that makes good money, somebody that's like doing the right things, and to somebody that's like, what the hell are you doing? And people ask yeah. you all the time. So you go from people never ask you why you're doing what you're doing to them, almost everyone asking you all the time. <laughs> And you're like, you don't have a good story uh, to tell them. You're just like uh, making stuff up or getting defensive or trying to like argue against what they're they're saying. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Like, uh, Nat, you probably have friends too who are like working in very competitive type of jobs like banking or law or something. And, you know, they're not many working. <laughs> not anymore. You don't know anybody? Not really. Not many. <laughs> this is I know why I'm... This is why I know I a couple people in banking to be around more weirdos. Yeah, <laughs> seriously, it's so oh, rare ahead. that it's so rare that I ever have somebody ask like, "So, what do you do?" That whenever it does happen, like I just I literally have no idea what to say. I'm like, uh, yeah. I don't. Good question, actually. <laughs> like, so, I actually, think? what I was about to say was was related to that, which is the the banking friends I have that are working like hundred hour weeks. Yeah. Nobody will ever ask them like why. Like, so what made you decide yeah. to do oh, that? Right? Yeah, like, yeah. nobody will ever ask that question. Yeah, but like, I didn't realize that till I left. Yeah. Or consulting too. It's another thing. Like if you do like high-end consulting, like a McKinsey or a BCG type job, right? Like same type of thing. You're working crazy hours. You're on the road, like four to four days a week. And nobody will ever ask like, why? Like, so what made you want to go do that? Right. Yeah. But if you were doing like whatever type, you know, whatever the hell it is that I do, I feel like I get that question a lot. Like, so what made you want to do that? It's like, uh, I like controlling my time. Um, I like having fun. But that's actually the answer that I found works when people ask that is because uh, it, it is pretty true. It's just like, this is what I have fun doing. And yeah. I'm lucky enough that people pay me for it. So yeah, it's just like, and that usually kind of people are like, oh, really? Like you can get paid to have fun. Like, that's interesting. <laughs> like it doesn't have to be. So for me, like my journey is a little uh, different from yours, Paul, but like, for me, I had that realization in, in really early, like in college that just, uh, cause I did one regular internship. I did a, a summer at Booz Allen Hamilton and it wasn't actually the worst. I got to work on a, on a project it's for pretty. a really, for a really cool boss. And like, it was actually an entrepreneurial, like an intrapreneurial project. So it was like a, mm-hmm. a new sort of idea within their company. So it wasn't even as bad as it could have been. And even with that, I was like, I never want to work at a place that's going to block YouTube. Cause I couldn't go on YouTube in the, at, in, in the office. And I was like, I just, I'm not a child. Like they hired me. Sure. I'm 18 years old, but like, if I can't be trusted to go on YouTube or not go on YouTube, like why did they hire me? Right. And like that yeah, yeah. became a big thing for me was just, I never want to have any other, like, I don't want to work for somebody that has that level of control over me. So it kind of forced me down this like weirder path. Um, 
yeah so that was like a big it, it sounds super trivial to say that that like youtube is the reason why i went down this different path but it, it i feel like it points to a bigger thing of just like what i was looking for in terms of what i want to do with work did you have other people in your life taking interesting or weird or unconventional paths at that I time feel no. oh no. interesting i, I, I didn't either of, that made it really yeah. hard Oh, interesting. Mine was yeah, hard. The, I got into I'm a lot of same. fights with my family around that. But everyone in whatever. my <laughs> like family has a very like standard full time life. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, same. A lot of people same. do have those influences. Mine yeah, was, like, uh, no. was Mixer. Mi- Mixergy was actually pretty pretty helpful for me. Like because that site was not blocked at work, and so I'd actually <laughs> watch. I'd actually watch interviews. Like That's no smart. joke. I'd actually watch interviews while I was there, being like because. I mean, Nat, I feel like you and I have talked about this in a prior episode. Like I would go there for eight hours a day, but I'd be done with like the actual things I need to do in like two to three hours. That's what I was going to mention is like, that was when I realized the consulting life wasn't for me was my second consulting internship. I, I was, I I realized I could get my work done in like two, three hours. And then I just like positioned my desk. So it was kind of in the corner. (laughs) And then I would sit there and read Kindle books on my work laptop. And so (laughs) It, it looked like I was on my work laptop working all day, but I was reading like Kindle books about entrepreneurship and marketing <laughs> and stuff. And that was what I spent most of the day on. It was great. Yeah, this is so similar. <laughs> in, in work, there's the work you have to do to do a good job. And then there's the performative work. Right? Yeah, and I yeah. think oh, as man, I yeah. progressed, it was the performative work creeping out the actual work or I was just getting better and it was a routine on the, the work I knew how to do. And that's just more about like keeping your career narrative going rather than right. doing a great job. It's so funny. Yeah. I mean, and the, the like finding inspiration or people to lean on for making that change is, is a good topic that doesn't really get touched on at all in the book. Cause he kind of just like says that we have all these problems and then doesn't really give much in the way of tools for the individuals to like overcome it. Which is fine, right? Like it's it's sort of a philosophy book, so it's not meant to be super practical. But I think you brought up a good point, Paul, about like, you know, okay, do you have individuals in your life you can lean on to good influences in this regard? And if not, then how else do you find them? And it sounds like for all of us, we were able to find them through media. I mean, so Neil, you had Mixergy. I had like honestly, it was just like a lot of Tim Ferriss stuff, right? Same. Where you had like four hour work week. I mean, this was back in 2013. Yeah, 2013. So he wasn't even doing the podcast or anything yet. But four hour work week was great. And his old blog posts are great. And like, that was kind of enough to get started and give that inspiration. Like, it was really helpful to have those examples out there. Yeah. Yeah. The, he, yeah, it's interesting reading this book. I don't know if you've read his other book, The Art of Loving, which. No, I've heard it's quite he, good. I have though. not. Yeah, he's. It's pretty interesting. Uh, he wrote it about twenty years later, and mm. you can kind of see the threads he's laying in this book that kind of lead to where he ends up twenty years later, because he doesn't really go into depth around. He mentions it a few times throughout the book: spontaneous activity, uh, love, and work. Um, but he doesn't really bring those alive in any sense that like people could know what to do with those. Um, but he goes into depth in that in The Art of Loving, which is that, like, he says uh, love is basically what we're all aiming for in life and then says multiple ways of arriving at love. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is work. 
And the kind of work he's talking about is the connectedness to self and connectedness to the world. Um, so that definition of work is really interesting to me. I, I think in the book, in this book, he does say, yeah, work is the other component, not work as a compulsive activity in order to escape aloneness, not work as a relationship to nature, which is partly one of dominating her, part, partly one of worship and of an enslavement by the very products of man's hands, but work as creation in which man becomes one with nature in the act of creation. So I thought that was pretty powerful. And the whole book, though, he doesn't really offer a strong positive vision. <laughs> it's kind of a dark book written at the beginning of World War II. So nope. that's a good point, actually. I didn't, I actually didn't put that together that it was written right at the beginning of World War II. Yeah, 1941. Yeah. Isn't that yeah. wild? That's a dark. That was a dark time for dark sure. Time. Well, I sense he, I sense he had these ideas bubbling around, and then he kind of saw what was happening. Is like, oh my gosh, everyone's just giving themselves up to Hitler in Germany and Mussolini in Italy, Stalin in Russia, and then also like he kind of dings the Western world too for like conformity and consumerism and corporations, but. Um, he's like, I got to get this out. And then the chapters on like Nazism and, uh, authoritarianism, I don't know. They didn't hit as much for me, but it felt like he had to put them in there. Yeah. Same. I had a lot fewer yeah. highlights in those parts, but. So I, I actually think there was some positive takeaway from this too, which was, I mean, he, he doesn't really go into it that much, but I think if you, as you read it, you can find it. Um, so he doesn't talk about the problems of this lack of, of meaning and, uh, the sort of freedom problem is probably how I'd think about it. But I think like if you take the inverse of that, so if you read between the lines, it's like if you do find or when you do find things that bring you meaning to like double down on those, whether that whatever that is. Right. And so like, I mean, he brings up nationalism and religion as being sort of intermediaries. I think we started talking about that earlier um, and a way that people were able to get meaning before. Um, but I think like, I took this as if there are activities, you know, whether that's like family, like Nat, you mentioned kids, like whether it's certain types of work, uh, creating other types of things to just lean into that and really, you know, embrace that. Because to me, that is like, like everything that we do, both societal and as individuals, we're kind of freeing ourselves from toil, right? Like we're not fingers crossed, like going to starve. Like there's, there's food, you know, we have heat and, AC and we have, you know, vehicles and like w our conditions are so much different than 500 years ago. Yeah. You know, yeah. We still have diseases and we still have, it's not like all the problems are solved, but our lives have so much less toil I mean, we have dishwashers, right? Like <laughs> we have washing machines, like these are all amazing things, but, but like at the same time that creates the problem of this like gap, like now your mind just has so much time to think about if, if you're in a position to do that, where you're just, you know, you have this emptiness and that emptiness is terrifying. Like if you don't have something to anchor to. Well, and I think that he, he starts to hit on mindfulness in his own way, right? Cause he does have this line sort of towards the end. I think it's like right at the end. Yeah. Man misses the only satisfaction that can give him real happiness the experience of the activity of the present moment and chases after a phantom that leaves him disappointed. As soon as he believes he has caught it, the illusory happiness called success. So it really does feel like he's kind of hitting on this idea of 
you know, one, not doing or chasing things that are kind of like thrust upon you by your peers in society, right? Trying to find the things that are internally motivating and internally fulfilling that like you truly resonate with, but then also this living in the present moment, not living for some future state or some like future moment thing you're going after. And, you know, you have the same language for it because I think that language is a little more modern, but he's definitely talking about some degree of like mindfulness. And, you know, to your point, Neil, I feel like the the issue we have now that he would probably talk about a lot if he wrote this today is this like lack of boredom and this lack of quiet and aloneness or oneness with our own thoughts and our compulsion to immediately fill any gaps in our experience with our phones or with some sort of like stimulation. And that's like a pretty hard thing to overcome. (laughs) There's a, uh, there's a tough addiction to tick for sure. I, I, I haven't figured out how to do that. But uh, there's a video that I I saw shared on Twitter this week, which we'll put in the show notes. I'll uh, make sure we put it in there. It was from probably like 94 or 95. And it was just like, it was this very 30 second video of like Tupac performing in some like little studio in New York. And there were maybe 50 people in the audience. And basically the person who shared the video was like, look at how the audience is reacting to him performing because nobody has phones in their hands. Right. So nobody's taking a video and just everyone's so in the moment. Like some Mm -hmm. people are dancing. Some people are like dancing with each other. Some people come up on stage and start dancing with him. Like it just like, if that scene happened today, like if you had, I don't know, post Malone or like Drake or something in a 50 person studio, everybody would have their phone out. Yeah. It would just be so different. You would be watching the performance through your phone. You wouldn't be watching it. Have you seen that Aziz bit? I think it's Aziz that he did at the start of one of his specials where he like somebody's, I can't remember if he just did. I think he just did it where he's like, all right, like I know everyone has their phones. So here's what we're going to do. Like I'm going to, he like does a bunch of poses as if like, he's like, you stand up and look, at, look like you're yelling at me and I'll look all offended and everybody get your picture in. Right. He like does a few things like that. And he's like, all right, now you're done. Put them away. <laughs> like you got oh, your photos. Good. It was pretty that's good. Awesome. I thought. That's awesome. Like- <laughs> yeah. The, I think that's another thing Frum's pretty early on writing in 1940. He's talking about how the economic system is impacting our psychology. And I think he's basically just calling people to be aware of that. Uh, mm-hmm. That's kind of step one to realizing that. And then you can actually start getting to know the mess of a human you actually are. Yeah. He, he's got this great line on page 247 where he says the emphasis on knowledge of facts, or I should rather say on information, the pathetic superstition prevails that by knowing more and more facts, one arrives at knowledge <laughs> of reality. And I, I think he's talking about education there and like, you know, memorization in schools, yeah. but it, it really applies here, right? Where it's like, and we definitely talked about this a lot in amusing ourselves to death, right? Where it's like, yeah. Oh yeah. If, if I just consume a ton of information all day, then I'm like super informed and have a good idea of what's going on. It's like, not necessarily. Right. And it definitely doesn't make you like a, a better human, right. Or like know more about yourself. It's just kind of this general obsession we have with trivia. That's pretty hard to turn on. Right. Yeah. I mean, we're probably all guilty of being in infovores, but. Oh, a hundred percent. Like, <laughs> yeah. dude, this, this is on like, 
I don't know if I was talking about this on our last episode, Neil, or in a different podcast. I mean, like, this is what I hate about being so deep in crypto. I just like, I literally can't turn it off. And it's like, despite the incredible opportunity, it almost makes me want to quit the space just because I feel like I have to be completely 100% plugged it's in. It's 24-7. Yeah, yeah. It's exhausting. Well, and we talked about this on, a, I think, our episode with Eric when, we, when he was on about the things that we talk about often it's like reminders to ourselves. And so, yeah, we're mm. talking about turning off information. I yeah. think, but all three of us are very much guilty, I'm sure, of being oh, totally. uh, overly online. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah, it well, sucks when you get rewarded for it, right? Exactly. Like, <laughs> it's, it's, one, it's one thing if you're just like watching the news, but I mean, for all of us, like we have somewhat of internet personalities and we have the podcast and like read your book, Paul, and it's like by being active on Twitter, you probably make more money. Right. Like, yeah. so it's good if you're active on Twitter, right? Like, you're building your audience. You have a business. It's, it's productive. Like, oh, God. Yeah. And <laughs> I, I make a justification of myself all the time, but I don't know. Who, who is it? Cal Newport. He seems to do okay. And the guy's like, I don't know. I think he's like writing scrolls to people instead of using. Yeah. Emails, so. <laughs> yeah. He's, I've been lucky to avoid that. I think some of the stuff I've done online that have done well have not been tied to what I like shit post about. Um, but <laughs> now with my book, I actually have something that like I see tweets to book sales like almost immediately. It's like, I'm, it's a little scary. I'm like, mm. like oh that's <laughs> feedback loop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I don't know. It's too much power. <laughs> <laughs> well, and sure. it's also like, if you start seeing that, you're like, well, I made, I tweeted four times yesterday. If I just, Spend if I spend another hour on Twitter today, maybe I'll sell double the number of books I was sold yesterday. And if that actually works, then you're like, maybe I should just spend all day on Twitter. And that's maybe not the best well, <laughs> thing for, yeah, you, I mean, for you. I mean, <laughs> yeah, and that, I mean that goes back to what he's saying. It's this real like dyna or I don't even know the word, but back and forth feedback loop of um, your psychology and the psychology you're getting from the system, and it kind of is evolving together. And we're always going to be uh, subject to that. And that's probably going to be a barrier to leaning into that positive vision of freedom. Yeah. And I think the other thing that I'd call out here, because this, um, I mean, we, we did an episode on finite and infinite games really early on. And I think there's some of that that connects here too, is like, you can get a lot of meaning from playing games and games could be like, you know, the crypto game, right. Or like, it could be the book sales game, or it could be like the consulting freelancing game, right? Like there's all these different games that you can play. And I think like where you get caught is if you start thinking that that, that game is reality. But if, you're, if you remember that it's a game, then it's just a game and it can actually be really fun and, and totally adds meaning to your life. And I actually would argue like it's hard not, at least in my experience, it's hard not to have a game that you're actively playing. And that's what I think you mean. Like everybody, I think Nat, you, maybe you mentioned it. Like you kind of need something to be going towards. And uh, at least that's been true in my experience as well. It's like, it's like, yeah, I, I recognize that these things are games, but I need one. I need to have at least one game I'm playing. Totally. And that's why I'm not always compelled by the arguments of like, oh, you should like be happy just living in the woods with nothing. Right. It's like, everybody needs some like a thing that is fun. I think the, the work obsession and the money or not even obsession, the work pursuit and the money pursuit become bad when 
they happen at the expense of what I think we could like generally agree should be more important things, right? Like family and health and like sense of self-worth. But if you like get a lot of joy from your work or if the money game is like a truly fun game to you that you're able to play without hurting yourself or your family or others, like I, I haven't seen a compelling argument that that's like a bad thing. Yeah, I, th- I think one upside of the self-employment game, if you call it a, call it that, is people may see people doing self-employment, solopreneurship, online creator stuff, and assume they're maximizing for revenue. But it's almost impossible mm-hmm. to maximize for revenue because there are infinite options of what you could be doing at all time. So you're almost if you are going to survive and keep doing that kind of mode of work in life, you have to define your own principles, which is going to force trade-offs that in most cases are going to have you optimize around more creativity, fun, or um, engagement with things that excite you to keep the journey going. Whereas that can just never be a trade-off you're faced with if you just kind of have a successful career or just kind of going in um, a steady path. The self-employment idolization or creator idolization is kind of an interesting other one, like off of your original, what you were talking about a while ago, where it's like, it's not for everyone. It's like, I think we are entering this like interesting work era where there's almost like an overemphasis on everybody should be a creator and like the creator economy is going to create this like massive unlock of like earning and wealth potential for the younger generation. And it's it kind of like, I just, I don't buy it for a second. Right? <laughs> like it's, it's a much harder and much worse way to try to make a living for the vast majority of people than other jobs that would be easier and more sustaining and like probably have higher upside. Right. Like, and this is kind of like the hard thing with it where like as the means of distribution have gotten more democratized and more like able to reach more broadly, like it does mean that there is more potential at the edges and, you know, you can find niches with riches and whatever, but you're also going to have, I think, more consolidation of success to fewer players, right? Because as like, we talked about this in the episode with Eric as well on Navalmanac, yep. where it's like as individuals... Yeah. yeah, exactly. As individual leverage increases, the need for other people in the system decreases. So you like almost by necessity create like greater extremes and outcomes. Yeah, that makes it like I, just on that note of like, oh, like everybody can, you know, be a creator and go down this alternate path. It's like it's not necessarily, I think, the best option for a lot of people. Well, that's kind of a trap too. I think Frome would say that's like pseudo freedom. That's not actually positive freedom. Yeah. We kind of, it's this we're aiming at an I like clearly identified path like and thing you're supposed people, to want yeah people aren't starting with like okay here's how I'm wired here's what I'm opting into like i tell people yeah. all the time like my unnecessary need for like freedom and autonomy over my life and work is what makes all the trade-offs worth it for me mm-hmm. and my like relative comfort for like i i'm okay mm-hmm. like if people don't think what i'm doing is smart or cool <laughs> yeah, I, I've said something like that before too, where it's like you you really shouldn't try to do entrepreneurial stuff unless you like literally have no other option, because it's like if if you, you have to have the kind of mind where you're just absolutely not going to be happy, like 
having somebody tell you what to work on day to day. Right. And if you don't have that like extreme negative reaction to that, then they're probably like much easier and happier lifestyles available to you. Yeah. That's, I always tell people like great way to get rich is get a uh, job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Get a job and, uh, at a, like early, a few early stage tech companies and you roll those dice a few times. It's probably going to work out. Well, and I think from touches on an interesting point around the spontaneous activity as kind of a path to positive freedom. So I've talked to like hundreds of people about their relationship to work and like one small thing that does seem to like sh- start to shift people's mind and enable them to be happier even in a job is like doing something weird with their day. So I'll challenge people to go for a bike ride in the middle of their work day. And just like going and doing that, not telling anyone and just doing that seems to ignite some like spark, like, oh, hmm. I can kind of play my own role rules, even though I'm in this um, design system. I think remote work is probably then yeah, a really positive a development yeah. for a lot of people. Yeah. Because I don't think companies, at least from the people that I've talked to, both who are in big companies and in smaller companies, like. I don't think they have the leverage anymore to force the like nine to five as rigidly as they used to, even if someone's remote or in the office. I mean, I think people are just like, they've had this sort of taste of a freedom in a way. Right. And like people got used to working out in the middle of the day or like being able to go for a walk or whatever, and not having that sort of like employ employer lockdown on you for those eight hours. I think the common knowledge changed. So the common knowledge was like, you can't just do things. I remember I would like leave work on a Friday at one and people would be like, what are you doing? (laughs) You know, you can just do this. You can just, (laughs) um, but now with the pandemic, everyone's like, yeah, everyone's kind of doing their own thing. So everyone feels the freedom because the default script is no longer, you can't leave work or define your rules or work out in the middle of the day or things like that. I wonder if it's going to last or if companies are going yeah, to try to pull people back too. in. They're trying. I, I mean, yeah, I know they some are companies trying. are trying, but so yeah. Like, like software. And- yeah, that's the, the YouTube like blocking on steroids. <laughs> oh, making you install tracking software to use it. Yeah. And then to see is like, is are you active? Like, did you move your mouse? And like, so crazy. That's crazy. <laughs> I, I think some companies will do that. Like old industrial companies, I'm still doing some work for some of these companies. They have such an outdated idea of what drives great work. Yeah. And in many ways, they're not trying to do great work. A lot of what they're doing is like continuing cultural norms of like showing up and getting paychecks. Um, right. But like smart companies are not going to over control people because they're going to understand how great work actually happens. Do you think the, and this is definitely not on topic with the book, but like <laughs> the measurement for work over the past, like 200 years, let's say has been hours, right? That's been like the, mm-hmm. and you do consulting. So, you know, like a lot of companies, especially the bigger industrial, like older companies love paying by the hour. Do you, have you seen an alternative metric that people can use or like, Obviously, for early stage stuff, it's a little bit easier because let's say you own a certain revenue channel. Okay, you can say this is how much revenue is attributed to that channel. But in a larger type of company, have you seen any any alternatives? I mean, m- most companies have already been measuring output. 
It's just yeah. that they've been pairing it with like the performance of work aspect and then all sorts of just mm. rituals of kind of like showing up to an office and just playing the role of worker, right? So I think that has softened. I mean, most companies are still measuring output. I'm ta- I talk to people all the time now that are, they're like, yeah, I'm working like six hours a week. Yep. <laughs> and, but well, yeah, nobody's like publicly saying that. They're that's what I mean. Like, telling like, me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not like publicly accepted to be able to say that. But there I are like definitely all those people stories. that have multiple full-time jobs. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. The multiple full-time jobs. Is tech. Wasn't there one person that got profiled who was working eight jobs simultaneously? They were like, yeah, well, we have to four to hours each. There, there was one guy that was principals at two, two schools. <laughs> and he resigned That's from amazing. both school, schools. I was so like, funny. this guy should be secretary of education. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, I see an article that's talking about like many people working mul- multiple full time jobs, but I don't see the eight in here. But I'm sure there's some. There's I'm sure there's somebody. Yeah, yeah, I I remember seeing at least one story about this. That's amazing. Well, <laughs> I think this is what I've been writing about recently. Is I kind of call the 2010 to right when the pandemic started the meaningful work era. It was like when mm. everyone was just like bought into this idea that the, a dream job existed in the container of a job. And the pandemic kind of undermined a lot of the foundation of that story. But we're in this actual liminal state where we don't actually know have any like work script or idea of how work fits into our lives anymore. There's like the industrial script of like put your head down and get a job and show up, but like no one really believes these, but no good alternative has exist has emerged yet. Yep. Yeah, there's actually this uh, quotation from the book that's very relevant to that, where he says, life has ceased to be lived in a closed world, the center of which was man. The world has become limitless and at the same time threatening. By losing his fixed place in a closed world, man loses the answer to the meaning of his life. The result is that doubt has befallen him concerning himself and the aim of life. Mm. Yeah, so we're in this kind of like middle state, I feel like at the moment. The other well, it's thing still that, early if you're yeah. I mean Fromm's basically saying like the 1900s is when the power of the church kind of receded right. and like, it's only 100 years into this that's kind of crazy yeah, yeah on one <laughs> hand it's crazy but on the other hand it's like the world was so different 100 years like oh, yeah. the pace of change over the past like 100 150 years let's say to to now versus call it the previous 150 years Right from a technology standpoint and day to day lives oh, standpoint, yeah. I think the previous 150 years before this most recent 150 years, there was a lot of geopolitical stuff that changed. Like the U.S. didn't exist, then it existed, and I mean, obviously that's relevant to us. But in terms of day to day lives, I don't know how much that actually affected. Like, let's put it this way: for the like small farmer in Pennsylvania, pre independence and post-independence like did their lives change that much in a generation versus like net like what uh what your child will grow up into right versus what you grew up into in terms of the yeah. the, the day-to-day life like it's so different I, in my I mean, opinion it's so much more different now than well if you look at like 20 years generation. ago right 
like life 20 years ago versus today. If you took somebody from 2002 and brought them to today, they would be like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. They're like, why is everybody walking around <laughs> hunched over looking at a tiny computer? <laughs> like, yep. it, there's just so many like weird things that are normal behaviors now. I mean, even yep. this, like this wasn't possible 20 years ago. Right. Right. Like here we are. And like, this is going to be on like some thousands of people's like, mobile computers, computers. in yeah. like a couple of days right there's just like so many things that are very crypto right <laughs> yeah all this even stuff. online banking right there really wasn't online banking in the sense back then we've we've not only like gotten through the online banking phase but we're now like leaving the online banking yeah. <laughs> it's like it's, I yeah. just, it's kind of wild to think about right and and this is like that was it beginning of infinity Right, where we talked a lot about exponential growth and some of these technologies yep. and how much stuff can change. And it's like, if you look at the the normal work life for people three or four years ago, it's so different now. And then you have to ask, okay, what's it going to be like in another five, 10 years? Right. Like the, I think the VR stuff is going to get kind of crazy kind of fast because it's kind of under the radar right now. So, yeah. And I mean, I, yeah. I got one of the new Quest 2s and it's pretty good. Like the graphics quality is still not great. It's like using an iPhone one, right? Or maybe it's like the last razor before the iPhone, but somebody's going to come out with like that next step leap improvement. And it's going to be, I think, kind of a, a paradigm shifting moment. Have we done that one? Have we done Kuhn's structure of scientific revolutions? We no. Do that at some point. Yeah, that'd be a fun that'd be, one. Yeah, yeah. that would be a good one to do. Our stories, there's this lag of like updating our stories. Um, mm. Like I actually write this in my book of like a vision of somebody starting work in 1980, right? They're walking into a desk. It's a metal desk with like an in and out memos box. And then the and the end of their career, 2020, they're arguing with their like team members on Slack trying to set up a Zoom and like working remotely and they like walk away and retire. And then the question I pose is like, do you think the next 40 years is going to be less change yeah. than that? <laughs> really and it's like, point. therefore, do you think we should still just be copy pasting like the boomers approach to uh, setting up work in life? Right. Probably not, but figuring it out on your own is damn hard. Yeah. And I think also on the other hand, if you do look at like historical uh, technological revolutions. Like there are these periods of insane change. And then there also are like really stagnant periods too. And so it's hard to, I mean, it's really hard to say, right? The next 40 years, I would bet on the increased change because I don't think we're through that that full transition. I think there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of things that we already see on the horizon, right? Like this AR, uh, AR and VR that we're just talking about. Crypto, I think is just sort of started its impact on the real world uh, versus where it can go. And so I think there's still a lot to go, but that may not always hold true is all I'm saying that like, it well, might not always change in 40 year periods. And there's also but, this question of like, what changes, right? Because coming, yeah. coming out of the sixties, I think it would have been a really reasonable assumption that for the next 40 years, we're going to have like these insane advances in space travel and like moon colonization and all this stuff. That's and it's like point. stopped, right? Like literally point. nobody cared about working on it. And it's kind of like wild when you look back on it, because all of the yeah. predictions about the future in the 60s and 70s were like space, 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 right? Like we're going to do so much cool shit in space and we did nothing, right? 
but yeah, nobody nobody so predicted the internet nobody predicted computers nobody predicted like any of the stuff that actually mattered and same thing with going into the 2000s where it was like oh it's it's going to be you know computers 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 and it's like no it was actually apps right like that was the thing uh and like nobody wanted to keep working on hardware right there was like basically no or there wasn't that much advancing in like there wasn't a lot of new innovation in computer hardware. It was just like refining the existing processor technology and screen tech and whatever for mobile phones. But like there was all this stuff on, you know, the software side. And now, right, it's like what what are we actually going to end up focusing on of all the things we could focus on? Right. And like why do we suddenly have an interest in in like real world engineering again? Or like why are we now doing like asteroid mining? And you know, I like I don't know the answer. It's just kind of an interesting thing to think about. Or like maybe what, this is what? the maybe this is the Fermi paradox like answer that yeah. Once well, a society I, I can find... do space, they're just like, hey, let's go do the metaverse instead. <laughs> exactly. I do find that argument kind of compelling, right? That people are like, well, actually it'd be easier to just go into computers than to, you know, explore space. So if we can just like you know, upload or transcend our bodies into computers, then we don't have to worry about food and the environment Exploring. and shit like that. So, yeah. Do you think like positive freedom is more possible now or is it declining because of all this complexity and change? That's a good question. It's definitely financially more possible, yeah. but I think it's psychologically harder, right? Uh, yeah. Because it's like one of the, well, I go back and forth on that. You definitely had fewer things to, mentally transcend before right in order to pursue that positive freedom because now we have i mean just the ability to compare yourself is so much worse now right like you can yeah you can see what everyone's doing it's not just yeah in your town it's like the people everywhere twitter corner of the world exactly you can always find somebody who's like richer and hotter and younger and everything than you so you know that definitely i think makes it hard in that sense but Paul, the, Paul, you may talk about this in your book. I don't, yeah. um, I'm not sure, but like, there's a phrase that like I heard a long time ago, and I don't remember where. But it's kind of like the idea of running your own race instead of doing the rat race, and like comparing yourself to others. But just like you want it, you still want it to be. It's almost like a race against yourself, right? You want to make sure you're still performing to the level that you know that you can perform to, and that's really the race that matters. Not so much like. Hey, do I have more money than this next guy? Or do I have a nicer car than like that guy? And so, yeah, I don't know if you talk about that, but I feel like that is for me, that took a while. Like that was not something I learned early on. I feel like it took me a few years to figure out that like, I'm much more unhappy when I try to compare myself like that. Yeah. That's kind of the meta theme of the book is how do you stumble upon your own principles, trade-offs, experiments, making that happen. And then how does it actually feel? Not like, how do you go be rich and like quit your job and live on the beach? It's, oh, it actually feels kind of shitty to do these experiments and it feels weird and it's hard and confusing and takes a few years to figure out. But yeah, I, I think I had the advantage of, I mean, I didn't, I grew up like pretty humble backgrounds. Uh, so like to me, I was in these worlds where I was making like six figures and I thought that was like more than I could ever need, except I'm literally next to people that are like, man, we're so poor, like making hundreds of thousands in New York City. And I I just didn't connect to that. <laughs> I, I didn't know what reality they were living in. 
Um, and then when I quit, I just did not want to create a job. So that ruled out doing a lot of things. There were a lot of easy like freelance projects I could take to make more money. Um, but it was like a clear no, because I was trying to optimize around something else. So I think it's age too. And like knowing yourself, like I see a lot of online people trying to do online creator stuff, especially early now. Um, and they compare themselves and they're like trying to compare themselves to like Dave Perel and Tiago Forte or something. Right. Um, I look at Dave and Tiago and I'm like, Oh, they have a much higher ambition setting than me. That's cool. <laughs> they're inventing and like creating new stuff. Uh, it'll make it easier for me, but that's not my game. <laughs> but I always tell people, I still get excited when I see like large dollar amounts, right? It's like you still feel yep. that envy or that jealousy. Like I am a human, but then it's taking that second step and be like, yeah, definitely not my game. Yeah. The, I think you've done a good job of this, Nat. Like you, you always write about um, kind of playing your own game too. Being perpetually unhappy. Maybe no. I heard that <laughs> phrase from, from Nat. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, no, but like I definitely agree with uh the point about like the comparison thing gets tired or like it it's turtles all the way down basically right because it's like for every person you're comparing yourself to like they have somebody else they're comparing themselves to right it's like there's probably so many people who compare themselves to uh david about his like twitter following or his like writing but you know he's comparing himself to other people's like YouTube channels, right, or to like other bigger writers, right? And like I, I've had this experience a few times where I'll like share an article in my newsletter that I think is like really really great, and I'll be like, oh, like you know, I wish I could like write as well as this person. Like this person's so cool, and then they'll respond and they'll be like, oh, hey, like I'm on your newsletter. <laughs> like I really love your stuff too. Right? So sometimes it's even just like circular where people are like, <laughs> yeah. oh, I, want, I wish I were you know more like that person, and they're like, I wish I were more like that person. Right? Like I don't know. I for for me, I feel like it was it was always an age thing. I think I had this unhealthy belief that like I was quote unquote like ahead for my age. And so I would always compare myself to where other people were at whatever age I was at. So like when I was 21 or whatever, or 22, I would say like, okay, well, where was Tim Ferriss when he was 22? Or like, what was he doing? And it's like, oh, well, he was just like, you know, at Princeton and he like wasn't doing any entrepreneurial stuff yet. So like, I'm doing well, right? Like I'm kind of ahead of him. Like, this is great. Or like, keep going. And it's like, not, I think a super healthy way to think, right? And I've, that's something I've had to like try to actively undo is like less a financial comparison, but more a like life progress by years comparison. I, I definitely like, you know, another version of this I've realized recently is like, I still do that sometimes where I, I still look at other people and I'm like, oh, well, you know, where were they professionally when they're 28? And I had this conversation with somebody once where I was like, you know, I, I've always been like a little like jealous isn't the right word, but I've always like compared myself to where you were professionally. And they were like, Oh, well I've kind of like always compared myself to where you were like relationship B. Right. Cause like, it's I like got what vector, right? Yeah. It's like, yeah. It's like, yeah, you can always find something else. Yeah. You can always find yep. something to be jealous of in other people. And that's like a really hard, I think thing to unwire. I do wonder if there's like a, especially for men when you're young, there's almost like a mm. prove it phase that you have to go through. That's true. I, I mean, think. yeah. Like getting into a top B school and like working in 
uh, strategy consulting at places like BCG and McKinsey, like I kind of solved that and realized it was kind of silly and stupid. <laughs> well, um, it's like a game, like you want to win the game, game, right? Yeah. Like you have this competition just, and yeah, there's like this David Foster Wallace quote is like the greatest gift in life is like, if you can succeed as early as possible. Yeah, oh yeah figure it out it doesn't mean anything is that from uh this is water i think yeah i, I don't know where it's from i i, I feel like that's a great gift on. that's a great yeah. gift but that's also a potential curse to somebody like someone who's successful super early and then hits that like meaningless phase at the wrong time could be i don't know fatal to somebody yeah. just like start getting addicted to a bunch of shit and like because there's nothing you can't afford before you like outgrow that. Like if I had, if I was like wealthy at 18, I'd probably not be alive. (laughs) Like I was an idiot at 18 (laughs) in many ways. So yeah, I don't know. There's definitely something to be said for like somebody getting successful too, too early too. It's so hard uh, to figure these things out. Like when I left, I'm happy with when I left. But if I stayed a couple more years, I would have made myself so much more financially secure. So like when I do compare myself to other like entrepreneurs and other people in positions, I'm probably like bottom 10%. But like those people talk to me and are like, oh man, you're thriving. Like, I wish I could trade places with you. It's like, it's so weird. It's, um, we all have such unique psychology and desires and needs. It's, it's really just a race to the bottom to compare ourselves to anyone. I mean, the, the yeah. most help on, I actually think this is one of the most helpful, like Twitter bits of advice that I've like ever seen or heard or internalized which is this concept that you can't be jealous of someone unless you would replace a hundred percent of your life with theirs because you just like, you can't pick and choose stuff. Right. And I think that's a novelism, um, which I'm sure is from, I, I want to figure out like where down his book stack that actually came from, but it's like a very helpful idea because then as soon yeah. as you think about like a thing of somebody that you're jealous of, it forces you to also think about, you know, the things in your life that you wouldn't, want to give up to have their life and it kind of like goes away pretty quickly yeah there's also this like god complex thing that i feel like i I don't know about you guys i've noticed that i sometimes fall into that where it's like i want to be able to do that and that and that and that and that and it's like we can't you can't be good at all of those things right or like you know it's like yeah i want to have like all sorts of freedom and no responsibilities and i also want to have kids and it's like, yeah. yeah, these, these two things are like, and I want to make a ton of like, money, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like these things yeah. are just like, not, yeah, I want to like never sleep, but I also want to be well rested. So like it, these things are just like not possible to have simultaneously. Like there definitely are things which you, you just can't have simultaneously. And that's, that's something where like, I sometimes find myself falling into that trap where it's like, I want all these different things. It's like, want, 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 but I, you know, you don't take like that step back of being like, okay, what do I actually want? Like, I probably don't want all of these things. Like, I don't want truly want all of these things. I just like think I want all of these things because maybe yeah. like, and he talks about this in the book, a lot of times what we think we want isn't really what we want. It's just like something we've been conditioned to want. Hello, man. It's hard to undo it. Right. It, yeah. I, I don't know if you guys ever feel this way, but when I think about the people who I like truly respect the most, it's most, it's often the people who end up transcending the game. Right. It's not the people who like win. 
It's not the people who make the most money or sell the most books or is the people who just seem to like not care and are just happy and are like doing great work completely for themselves. Right. Like I think Scott Alexander is a good example of this where he, you know, pretty like ugly, unoptimized website, almost no effort at financialization, (laughs) uh, has never like tried to write a book or anything of that caliber, never like tried to cash in on his reputation. He just loves writing and he's an incredible writer and like puts out amazing content multiple times a week and just seems super happy doing it. Right. Like, that that to me, I, I end up having so much respect for uh, more than like the Jeff Bezos's or like you know crazy crypto billionaires or whatnot. Because it's like, oh, you like you truly want you you actually seem like pretty satisfied. But that could also just be a story I'm telling myself, right? And like Scott Alexander is actually just like hopelessly jealous of other writers who he thinks are <laughs> better than him, right? Like I'm sure there's an element of that too. I can tie us back to Frome here. All right. Um, <laughs> uh, I guess we haven't mentioned the book in a while. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was an interesting one. He talked about like the the power, right? Um, the kind of people that pursue power, and the, he differentiated mm-hmm. it into two things. One is like people are aiming at power, trying to meet a lack of something, like they're lacking something, and they're trying to get that power for like control. And the other one was. He puts it in a really interesting um, way. I think it's, yeah, the, the word power has a twofold meaning. One is the possession of power over somebody, the ability to dominate him. The other meaning is possession of power to do something to be able to be potent. Uh, the latter meaning has nothing to do with domination. It expresses mastery in the sense of ability. So that's kind of what you're saying with Scott Alexander. He's found that like slipstream of here's the thing I can like continue to excel at, get better and kind of works with my life and funds it too. He's like got a great infinite game going basically. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, we think we want to be CEO. Um, But that, that was a gift of working in consulting too. My last job, I was consulting to boards and doing CEO succession planning. 98% of these men were not, people I like aspired to be. Mm. So I was like, what am I doing? <laughs> That's actually been kind of a helpful realization for me recently too. It was like, oh, you know, maybe I don't necessarily want to like start a company. Like maybe doing this kind of work is actually much more satisfying. Right. And kind of like recognizing what type of stuff like that brings you that kind of happiness, I think is pretty powerful. Yeah. A lot of this ties to ego too, right? It's like, mm. At least I know when I'm definitely like when I was younger for sure, where it was like, oh, I want to be the CEO. Cause it's like you want to win. Like you want to be yeah, the yeah. you want to be the guy. But it's also like that was probably put into my head through uh, observe, observing other people, or I don't know, just I don't know where it came from, but that was probably not like an actual thing that I wanted. Because I what I've noticed, at least with because I've worked with a lot of different companies now uh that are not my own, and I've noticed the ones that like I actually really enjoy the CEO isn't like a CEO in the way that like you would picture on a TV show, right? It's like, it might just happen to be the founder person might have a product vision or might be like a functional group leader, but it's really not like, it's not the like image you might have of a CEO, like somebody might have of a CEO and the most dysfunctional teams typically have that person who is playing that 
role basically of the the tv ceo and yeah it just kind of like makes me wonder like where that belief comes from i'm sure there are some people who probably are born for that role but paul i've had a similar observation in my work where a lot of the people in especially in larger companies who have reached kind of the top of it it's just like that is not actually like if that is the conclusion of the path that's not necessarily the, that's not really the path i want to go on like the prize well, doesn't seem to be that compelling yeah. The ones that thrived, I think the ones that thrived were doing it despite the incentives of the organization and role, right? So it was a choice. It was a choice to say, I am going to embrace this unique version of who I am and inject it into this role and do the extra work to do that. Um, You don't have to. Like, here's the thing at the top of most companies, you can kind of just coast and like do what other people are more or less doing. You don't have to be an inspiring leader. You don't have to be somebody that mentors and coaches and is generous. The incentives aren't really there in large companies. I mean, I was going to say, this is actually a great uh, segue for your next book. Exactly. It's a perfect segue for the next one. one Oh, you have, you like it. Oh, what a wild book. It's like so clear and direct. Yeah, I don't know how I stumbled on it. The the book for anyone listening is uh, King Warrior Magician Lover, which is basically oh, I was talking a, about Dictator's Handbook. Oh, oh, yeah, oh yeah, yeah that's we haven't recorded ne- that one yet. Yeah, that's, that's the next. actual next one. I guess, guess both yeah. of those work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dictator's Handbook is. I guess yeah, we're recording that one next. We originally were recording it yeah. before this one, but we haven't recorded that one yet. So we'll do yeah. that one next, and then King Warrior Magician Lover, which uh, I was going to say actually ties in even more to what we're discussing right yeah. now of like realizing what type of uh like psychological archetype you resonate with strongest and not feeling compelled to fulfill a different role than you know where you feel most aligned but also dictator's handbook because it definitely (laughs) ties in with uh some of these power discussions yeah and it's i think that's so helpful when you're just like making sense of the world is just being honest about what's really happening. Often it's really simple. The incentives are straightforward. And what makes us stressed or anxious is really disconnected of the story we want versus what's mm. actually happening. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like that's actually a lot of what I talk about in my book as well on the corporate innovation incentive side. Uh, because a lot of startups who are trying to sell to corporate, that's one of the things they that they always run into is like, well, my technology will really help them. Or like my product is so much better than their product. Like, why wouldn't they want this? And it's like, yeah, that is like actually a very, very tiny variable in this situation. Uh, it's more about the person that you're negotiating with on the other side or the the, the, the actual, uh, th- there's just so many more incentives that matter than just how good your technology is or like that your product is incrementally better than the the status quo. But you're totally right. Actually, I didn't. I hadn't put that piece together. That that's where the anxiety comes from, is when the story that's in our mind is not actually what's happening in reality, and they're clashing. Well, it's like it, you see people that will like write a lot in the internet or something, and like money doesn't magically show up because that's not how it works. And like they'll get really burned out and frustrated from that. It's like to me, it's like. I don't really care what I believe, (laughs) like what works. And then once I figure out what works, what trade-offs am I willing to pay or costs am I willing to pay to actually do that? And if I'm Mm. willing or not willing to do it, those are the choices. 
Um, and a lot of this stuff, it, it, it's really silly and it, it's better off if you're kind of wired for how the world works than, than not. It's almost like a scientist mindset versus like, I don't know what the verses would be, but the scientist mindset is like kind of experimentation and then iterating based on what's working or not working. Kind of not trying mindset would be, yeah, maybe it's a faith mindset. Yeah. Yeah. In the book you're saying. Yeah. He, let's see. He's talking about the church and, um, the disconnect between modern men. He's saying the modern individual has lost to a great extent the inner capacity to have faith in anything which is not provable by the methods of the natural sciences. That's kind mm. of, I guess that's kind of related, but it's like we take so much of like what people say you're supposed to be doing and like proven paths and legible things and we take that as like truth. Whereas that may not help you depending on how you're wired or what you're aiming for, what desires you have. Yeah, absolutely. So I have a hard stop in a few minutes. Um, Me too. Should we so, wrap it up? Yeah, we can wrap up. Uh, if there's anything else we want to we wanna touch on, Paul, if there was anything else that you wanted to make sure we touched on. Oh, you didn't say the name of your book. Actually, that's, that's a good been, point. Yeah, I've been being so, so coy about it. <laughs> the Pathless Path. Imagining a new story for work and life. Um, if you don't want to buy it, I'll gift it to you. Uh, I just wrote it so I'd have more people to talk about kind of a solving for positive freedom. And, and make sure that you go stuff. like one of Paul's tweets before you buy the book so that he feels compelled to spend all day on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. In order train, to- <laughs> train the dopamine trigger. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, it's really working now. It's really working. Yeah, right. <laughs> And, and Paul, uh, what's your Twitter? Is it just Paul Millard? P underscore Millard. P Millard. Cool. All right. Yeah. So check out Paul. Check out The Pathless Path. Grab a copy of Escape from Freedom as well. Uh, Escape from Freedom, I think. Yeah, that's been, been that's a better been title. Yeah. <laughs> I, saw that, I saw that tweet. It made me crack up. That was cool. I, I would not have had the self-restraint to not call it Escape from Freedom. But <laughs> you know, I was still reading the book at that point, and I was changing the froms in the book to the fr- from. <laughs> it's like, damn that. <laughs> yeah, once you see it. But... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so next episode will be Dictator's Handbook. Uh, the one after that will be King, Warrior, Magician, Lover. If you guys want to grab those books as well. Uh, as always, reviews on iTunes or elsewhere are awesome. Spotify still doesn't do reviews, right? I think they just started. They do now. They just they, started. They do yep. now? Okay, cool. Yep. Yeah, so please go leave nice reviews there. Talk about how much uh, how great the podcast is and how much uh, everybody should listen to it. And if you don't like it, then you know don't. Do that, please. Yeah. <laughs> if you don't do that, so, I don't know how you're still here an hour and a half later. But <laughs> you'd be like surprised. Any, yeah, you'd be surprised listening to the podcast. <laughs> I did get a, so I did get a message this. at one point after our. Yeah. Uh, you gotta listen well, to the go. show first on Spotify. Ah, okay, they're not letting me rate it without listening on Spotify. Well, that's good. That's good. It's like proof, go proof Spotify. Of, yeah, yeah. Well, proof of work. Proof of work. There you go. Proof of work. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I actually did get a message once after our update episode recently, which is somebody who clearly listened to the entire episode and was not happy about it for what? one reason or another. And I was like, well, that was a pretty long episode for you to just not like like anything that you heard. So you I like that yourself. all of the <laughs> I like that all of the hate 
uh, email goes to you instead of me. A good email goes to me too, though. I feel like I get a lot of nice. <laughs> oh, okay. I get yeah, a lot, you get a lot, of lot more of the inbound too. than I do. I wonder why. Yeah, I feel like maybe you've said on previous episodes like you don't like email that I'm just not going <laughs> to respond to stuff. Yeah, it's yeah, and I just like people are like, well, I don't want to piss him off, so I'll send I, I respond to Twitter DMs. I'm really bad at email, but if people DM me on Twitter, I'm pretty good at responding. So DM that so that he feels some love from the only only if you You guys like the show. If you don't like the show, email Neil. (laughs) Train the dopamine hit. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, Paul, glad you could join for the episode. Uh, And yeah, we'll uh, see you on Twitter. Sounds good. See you guys next time. See you guys.